0: All of you for persevering with me through these difficult portions of Scripture, and I hope that uh, it has been as fruitful for you uh, as it has been for me. As we're looking at Zephaniah, if you don't have uh, a copy of the Scriptures, don't worry. The verses will be up on the screen. They're also in the green piece that you got when you came in. The question I want to ask this morning is how do we keep going when it seems so pointless? How do we hold on to our faith when life is so hard and God is so silent? That was the question that the people of Judah were asking, the people that Zephaniah is writing to. They were asking the question how do we keep going? They were surrounded by enemies looking to be oppressed and destroyed, and they are asking the question how can this faith possibly be real? How can we persevere? How can we endure? And the answer that Zephaniah gives is in 317 and says that their endurance, their only hope for perseverance is in the Lord. Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 17. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. This is God's Word. Let's pray. Father, no matter whether we know it, or believe it, or feel it, we are wholly dependent upon you and your mercy. And we pray now, Father, that you would give us your mercy in the preaching, the hearing, the application of your word. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear, we pray in Jesus name. Amen. I just couldn't take it anymore. I just couldn't handle it anymore. I wanted to walk away. I didn't know what to do. I wanted to simply give up and quit. Those were my thoughts, those were my feelings over a year ago now as My wife and I endured a colicky baby. (laughs) I see some of you have had the shared experience. If you don't know what colic is, consider yourself a blessed person. It basically means that you are absolutely powerless, that no matter what you do, no matter if you're rocking him, if you are bathing him, feeding him, swinging him, loving him, whatever you do, you are powerless to stop the crying. You're powerless to get him to go to sleep, and therefore powerless for yourself to go to sleep. We were going through this four-month period of colic at the same time I was starting a new job here at Green Tree, the same time we were trying to buy our first home as a family. Prior to that, you know, during the pregnancy, I was telling all kinds of stories, stories of, of God's goodness and His faithfulness, of how He had allowed us to get pregnant, how He had blessed us with this child, how He had given uh, us His grace and his favor, about, stories about God, God and his goodness, stories about our excitement for this child, and now, I was just too tired, I was just too weary, too burdened, now the stories were about hopelessness and fear and question, and what would we do with this little boy that wouldn't stop crying? People of Judah were in the same place, They used to be people of great stories. They used to be people who told stories of God's goodness. They used to be people who told stories of the exodus and God's mighty hand to save, of God's deliverance, of their joy in Him. They used to be people of stories about God's goodness and His work and His grace in their lives. And now there are people who are burdened and tired and weary A people who look out at the nations and see the nations, the other nations, the godless nations, succeeding and doing well and prospering. They say, why should we keep going? If we can't beat them, we might as well join them. Their stories have turned from the goodness of God to the fear and the questions and the doubt. What about you this morning? Maybe it was just a few months ago when you were telling the stories of God's goodness, stories of God's redemption. Maybe it's been 10, 15, 20, 30 years since you've been able to tell stories like that, and now it just seems you're too tired, you're too weary. It seems so pointless. How can you continue? How can you endure? How can we persevere? You know, the word Perseverance is not exactly a popular word in our culture anymore. In fact, it's probably more vice than it is virtue. We don't really persevere in anything these days, do we? We tend not to persevere in relationships. We, relationships are all good as long as they are serving our needs, as long as they are fulfilling us, as long as it doesn't cost too much or take too much of our time. But as soon as that relationship begins to cost us, as soon as it begins to require something of us. We don't persevere, we walk away. We rarely persevere in jobs. We rarely persevere in our commitments to people and organizations, because there's always something better. There's always something more to do. It's really the same in the church. People rarely persevere long-term in the church. They're fine. They're, They're enjoying the church as long as it is meeting their knees, as long as they don't have a disagreement with the pastor, as long as the sermon wasn't too long or, or uh, too short or a ministry didn't uh, get in their way. We sort of see church as like the spiritual Walmart. You know, As long as they're providing the, the lowest prices and the best service, we stick with them. But if they don't, then we go to Target. We go to another store, another church that can provide us something better. And so perseverance has become almost a bad word because we live in a consumer culture. Our entire economy almost is built on the fact of a lack of perseverance. Just think if, if all of our companies made products that lasted forever and ever, that lasted long term, what would happen to our economy? It would fall apart. But instead, everything that is made is made to break, to be replaced. It's made to fall apart. It's made in some way to go out of style or go out of fashion. And so in everything around us, we see a lack of perseverance. And I think, truth be told, we're happy with that. We're content with that. We're happy with looking for that greener grass on the other side. But Zephaniah says that he will not let our culture or the outward circumstances dictate God's call on our lives to endure, God's call on our lives to persevere and to the end. And so he begins to tell us an enduring story, a story of God. The story of God and his people, that he will purify his people, that he will protect his people, and that he will pour himself out over his people. Well, first he says he's going to purify his people, but purify us from what? The answer comes in chapter 1, verses 4 to 6. He'll purify us from idolatry. It says this, I'll stretch out my hand against Judah, against my people. Against the inhabitants of Jerusalem, I'll cut off from this place the remnant of Baal was a foreign god, and the name of the idolatrous priests, those who bow on the roofs to the hosts of heaven, those who bow down and swear to the Lord, and yet swear by Milcom, another god, those who have turned back from following the Lord, who do not seek the Lord, and who do not inquire of him. To the people of Zephaniah's day, the people of Judah, they used to tell stories about God. They used to have these wonderful stories to tell, and now They're talking about Baal and Milcom. They're talking about stories of other gods. Now they talk about the idols in their midst. They look around. They see other religions prospering and growing up around them while they seem to be shrinking, while they seem to be falling away, while they seem to be in decline. And they basically say, well, if you can't beat them, you might as well join them. And it seems so easy. It seems almost innocent. It seems almost innocuous not so bad, you know, to have these other sort of idols around. God is still in the picture. He's still there, but the other idols are there too. It didn't seem too bad. I read a story just last week about uh, a woman who, she has been a priest in the Episcopal Church for over 20 years, and yet in the last year, she has been simultaneously practicing uh, the faith of Islam. And she said, you know, it's not It's not a big deal. I I, am both a Muslim and a Christian. And I would look at that and say, the world looks at that, I think, and says, that's a good thing. You know, she's she's reaching out. It's diversity. She's engaging other people, other cultures. But I would look at that and say, she has no idea what it means to be a Christian if she thinks she can be a Christian and a Muslim at the same time. It makes no sense. And so... God calls that in verse 6, those who have turned their back on him. And so we see right there from the beginning that God will not be treated lightly, but he will be worshipped. God himself will not be trivialized in that way. He will not be marginalized. He will not be pushed to the fringe. He will be served. God will not be uh, the, check, the check on a box for us. He will not be a decision that we made when we were kids, an aisle that we walked God demands our whole life for the rest of our lives. He demands our perseverance. He demands that He alone be worshipped. God's going to purify us from idolatry. also will purify us from the love of the world. Look at chapter 1, verse 18. It says, Neither silver nor gold will deliver them. On the day of the wrath of the Lord, in the fire of his jealousy, all the earth will be consumed for a full and sudden end. And he will make of the inhabitants of the earth that end. He's basically looking out and saying, Look, all these things that you love, this gold, this silver, all that you have loved more than God, will one day be wiped away. It will one day be taken away. It will one day be gone. You know, I, I can guarantee that if I were to ask the question, Uh, Who wants to go to heaven when they die? Probably 95% of you, or maybe even more, would raise their hands. But if I said, who wants to go to heaven today? If we were honest with ourselves, probably only a few of us would be able to raise our hands. Why? Because we love this world. We love the things here. We love it too much. And we look around, just like the people of Judah, and say... You know if we can't beat them we might as well join them you know rather than being a church who is like a tractor plowing a countercultural wave through our country we are like minnows swept down a stream we are not countercultural. we have become culture driven and rather than the stories of God we began to tell the stories again and again of our culture ask yourself this question think about your conversation. Think about just over the last week the subject matter, the content of your conversations. What are you talking about? What kind of stories are you telling? As I thought about that, I thought about how centered my conversations were, how centered everything that I tend to talk about is on me and on the things of this world, showing where my true heart is, showing where my real Love is. We begin to push the stories of God to the fringe. God is on the margin, and our conversation consists of the things that would please our culture. They're indicative of our love of the world over our love for Christ. I think we've been cult- become culture driven in lots of ways. I'll just mention a couple of them. I think one is uh, our children. You know, rather than going against the culture, we just begin to see what the culture is doing and take it on to And we just begin to be that same thing. We teach our children that the most important things is that they succeed on the field or on the court or in the classroom. The most important thing in their life is that they have the right clothes so they can fit in or they have the latest technological gadgets and machines. That's not what God is saying about our children. That's not living by the principles of Scripture. I'm not saying those are bad things, but teaching our children that the most important thing in life is not to be successful in sports or in the classroom or in career. The most important thing in life to teach our children is that they love the Lord their God with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength, and their neighbor as their self. As part of what we're doing in baptism, as we did this morning, is that we're telling our children another story. We're telling our children a story of God's intentions for them. Telling our children a story that their purpose is much greater in this world than to make money and retire early. Their purpose, they have a purpose with the king. They have a purpose with God. We do it with children. We do it with money too, don't we? We let the culture define how we look at money, we let the culture define what the good life is. The good life is to get a good job, and to raise a good family, and to build a big retirement account, and be able to retire early, and cruise around the world, or whatever the situation is, and and those aren't bad things at all, but what I'm saying is that we begin to take on that persona, that those, that is what the good life is, the American dream, that is what the good life really is, and we're Falling, we are flowing with the culture. We do it as well uh, with our concept of sexuality. We we follow the culture's norms that any kind of expression of sexuality with whomever, whenever, whatever is appropriate. And we think God is God is really okay with that. And if He's not, maybe we don't care so much anyway. But either way, God is purifying us and telling us. He wants us, our whole life, for the rest of our lives. God will purify us, but he'll also uh, protect us. He'll protect us in the midst of suffering, in the midst of enemies. He says this in chapter 2, verses uh, 8 to 10. He says to the people, I have heard the taunts of Moab. I've heard the revelings of Ammonites. How they've taunted my people. They've made boasts against the territory. And therefore, as I live, declares the Lord, Moab will be like Sodom and the Ammonites like Gomorrah, a land possessed by nettles and salt pits and a waste forever. The remnant of my people will plunder them, survivors of my nation will possess them. This shall be their lot in return for their pride, because they taunted and they boasted against the people of the Lord. He's saying there, look, these people, the people of Judah, they have suffered and they have heard the taunts. They have heard the other people taunting them. Look at your God. He has been defeated. Look at your God. He is dead. Look at your God. He is silent. And they have suffered greatly for it. They have suffered in the midst of these things. I'm sure that you too could tell the stories of suffering, the stories of taunts from enemies. Stories of deaths and disease. Story of bad news from the doctor. Story of relationships torn and ripped apart. You can tell the stories of the tauntings of enemies. Those who would look at you with a sad eye to say, you know that thing that you believe about Jesus, that whole Christianity, that's okay, but It's really quite foolish. It's really quite silly. It's really almost worthless. And Christianity has been taunted in that way from the beginning. And it will be to the end, and yet it is a story that endures. A story that has lasted from generation to generation. And God promises in the midst of suffering, in the midst of enemies, to protect His people. Look at chapter 3, verse 15 talking about the tauntings and the boasting. says, The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies, the King of Israel. The Lord is in your midst, and you shall never again fear evil. He promises to protect His people. But I think when we think about that, what does that mean? We have to get rid of a certain mindset about who God is. We have to rid ourselves of the mindset that God exists, that God is up in heaven simply to make us happy, that he is there working all times, all days to fulfill our desires. That view of God doesn't come from scripture. It comes from our culture. It comes from the United States of America. We live in a culture, a society of entitlement, do we not? We live in a culture of entitlement where we believe our nation owes us a certain type of life. And that translates in the fact that God owes us, too. God owes us a middle or upper class lifestyle. We feel that God owes us certain kinds of cars and homes and a certain lifestyle. We live in an entitlement culture. I heard a sermon just this week by uh, a professor named Richard Pratt who talked about the fact, uh, talked about the American government and said, you know, it's not, it will not be long when we have a government that is by the people, And for the people, it won't be long until we have a God who is by the people and for the people. I love democracy. I think it's the greatest form of government there is. But I think that time is upon us that we have created not a God who in 315 says he is king, but a God who we believe we have democratically elected and that we can do away with in our own time. Our Constitution guarantees us inalienable rights, doesn't it? The rights of life and liberty and the pursuit of happiness. And therefore we believe that God too must give us those rights that God too owes us. Life, liberty and happiness which we define as fulfilling our desires at all time. And yet chapter 3 verse 15 says something different about God. It says that God is not a democratically elected prime minister or president. It says that God is king. And that's an inconvenient truth for me and probably for you, because it says that you and I live in His empire. We live in His kingdom. Which means that our existence, our life, our purpose is given over not to our own desires, not to our own whims, but to the purposes and the desires of the King. And that's an inconvenient truth for us today, I believe. Long ago, John Calvin had a seminary, 1500s. He had a seminary in Geneva, Switzerland, and he would train pastors uh, to come there. They would train with Calvin. They would go out and plant churches all over Europe. And because of the persecution at the time, the average lifespan for one of those pastors planting churches was six months. Now, as a church, we've been involved in planting four churches. We're working on our fifth. And uh, they've all been uh, works of God. They've all been very difficult, and yet they've all been very fruitful. But can you imagine how many church planners would sign up if we said, the average life expectancy for you is about six months. I can't personally imagine ever going to seminary if I thought that I would have been killed six months out of my graduation. In the midst of this seminary, one night Calvin heard a knocking on his door. It was late at night, and he didn't answer the door, but it kept on knocking, knocking, persisting. And finally, he went to the door. And he opened it. And standing before him was a woman, a young woman. And she was covered in blood. It was the blood of her husband, the pastor, who had been murdered in his sleep beside her. How many church planners would we have to volunteer for that job? And I wonder what it was that made a man willing to be a pastor in that situation, willing to leave his wife a widow and his children orphans. What made a woman willing to marry a man like that? And the only answer that I can come up with is that they had an overriding belief that God was king. In the midst of their sufferings, in the midst of their enemies, they knew that this world was not all. They knew that God was not a democratically elected leader, but that He was their king, and that He ordains all things, and that whatever He ordains is right. Because he is the king. I think that is the attitude that personally I would like to recover. And I think that the church, especially in the West, needs to recover. That God does not serve at our pleasure, but we serve at his. And so we begin to tell and see the story of the king. God promises to purify us, to protect us, and He also says that He will pour Himself out over us. He says He will pour Himself out on us. Chapter 3, verses 9 and 10, He says this, "'At that time I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech, "'all of them that call upon My name and serve with one accord,' From beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshipers, the daughters of my dispersed ones, they will bring my offering. He says that he is not only the God of a tribe, the God of a nation, he is the God of all the nations. He is king over all peoples. It's not just a New Testament doctrine where suddenly God starts talking about other nations. It's all through the Old Testament as well where God is saying, I am the God of the universe. I am the one alone who is to be worship. What do we do with these things? We're talking about endurance and perseverance. What do we do when we have failed? What do we do when we have failed to persevere and to endure? I think the answer comes at the end of the book, chapter 3, verses 17 to 20. Listen to how God responds to his people. The Lord your God is in your midst a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. He will gather those of you who mourn for the festival that you will no longer suffer reproach. Behold, at that time I will deal with your oppressors. I will save the lame and gather the outcast. I'll change their shame to praise and renown in all the earth. At that time, I will bring you in. At the time when I gather you together, I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes. Before your very eyes, says the Lord. Listen to those verses. God, the king of the universe, the king of all the nations, says... He is in your midst. The king of the universe says he will rejoice over you. That he will exult in you with singing. What a picture. The God of all of creation would look at you and me and sing he would look at you and me and rejoice over us I started by telling you the story of my son and his colic and how no matter what we did we could not stop him from crying I did not want to endure I did not want to persevere I wanted to walk away wanted to go to sleep somewhere for many weeks. But there's an enduring picture in my mind. That after four months, the point at which I wanted to walk away. That I felt like I couldn't take it anymore. I remember looking. Hearing Jude crying yet again looking into the bedroom my wife was holding him and he was going crazy he was crying, screaming, wiggling not taking his bottle, not going to sleep and yet she was rejoicing over him he was singing singing a song. In the midst of his crying, she exulted over him. And it was that picture, that picture of love and sacrifice, that compelled me to endure and persevere until today when we have a very happy little boy. One whom I haven't seen in a week and I long to see tonight when he comes back from his in-laws. You know, I think that is the picture I get when I think about us and God, that we are that little baby crying, screaming, refusing to be satisfied, refusing to hear the voice of God. And yet there's God singing over us, exulting with praises and rejoicing that we are His children. This is an amazing picture, one that compels us to persevere and endure. I need to skip down and close and respect our time today, but I would be remiss if I did not point us this morning again to the cross. To the cross is the place of the greatest perseverance, the greatest endurance ever. Because you realize, don't you, that Jesus could have walked away. He didn't have to endure. He didn't have to persevere. As that crown of thorns was placed on his head, he could have walked away. As the nails went into his flesh, he could have given up. As the people around him spit upon him and mocked him and beat him, he could have said enough. I'm the king of the universe, and I won't have it. As sin and death and hell did its worst to condemn him, as God himself, the Father, poured out his wrath upon Christ, he could have called 10,000 angels and said, enough. But he endured, and he endured until his last breath, even to the point of death. And three days later, that lifeless body became life and in the resurrection he burst open the tomb and suddenly we see that it is not us who must persevere it is god who will preserve it is not us who will persevere it is jesus who has persevered for us and it's jesus that will persevere people may come and go green tree community church might rise and fall the american church might wane and collapse i don't know But I do know that Jesus Christ and His universal church will persevere because He has promised that He will build His church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Jesus has promised that He will persevere until God and the Lamb fill this earth with His glory. That He will persevere until every knee bows and every tongue confesses. That Jesus Christ is Lord and because he will persevere, because he will endure, we too will endure if we cling to him. This is the enduring story, a story being told around thousands of pulpits all over the world this very hour. It is the story that compels us not only to live well, but to die well. Not only to live well, but to finish the race. I want us to take just a few moments now in silent prayer and then we will close together with the Apostles' Creed. Let's pray together.